Before we get started, I want to tell you about my new book. It's called The New Mobility Handbook, Rethinking How We Get Around Cities. The book builds on my work on the Smarter Cars podcast here over the last three years as we've explored autonomous vehicles, ride hail, and then micromobility and the impact of all of these new technologies on cities. New mobility options are incredibly popular and can encourage multimodal travel in ways that public transit has not. But these options have also created new challenges for cities that can't be solved by technology alone. We need to combine these new mobility modes with urbanist policies to keep our roads moving. Transportation in cities will not be an either-or solution. We don't have to choose between ride services, bikes and scooters, or getting everyone to ride the bus. It's not either or, it's and. We're going to need all of these technologies working together to rethink how we get around cities. The New Mobility Handbook offers a grand unifying theory of sorts for how we can have the benefits and convenience of new mobility options while also meeting city goals to encourage multimodal travel and reduce traffic and pollution. If you're not familiar with the principles behind urbanist policies like congestion pricing, transit priority, reduction in parking, and reallocation of street space, the New Mobility Handbook provides an introduction to these policies and how they can be used together with new mobility technologies to improve transportation in cities. The New Mobility Handbook is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle versions. I hope you enjoy the book. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to Season 5. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking with Jody Kelman, Director of Product Management at Lyft's self-driving platform. Lyft has taken a two-pronged approach to self-driving, including partnerships with Aptiv and Waymo, as well as developing its own autonomous driving system through its division called Level 5. Jody, welcome to the show. Hello, great to be here. So Lyft runs a ride hail platform today with human drivers, but you're also working toward the use of autonomous vehicles. Can you start by telling us about your role at Lyft and the approach Lyft is taking toward autonomy? Yeah, of course. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me here and really fun to get a, a chance to talk a little bit about sort of the future possibility in, in these odd times that we are all living in today. Uh, so so uh, let me tell you first a little bit about what I do at Lyft. So I joke to my friends and family that that I cannot believe I get paid to do what I do. My job is basically to bring self-driving technology to Lyft riders in our app today. So if you, Michelle, are a Lyft rider and you go to Las Vegas or Phoenix, you know, as soon as we are all out of our houses, you can <laughs> open up the Lyft app today and take a self-driving ride powered by one of our partner self-driving companies like Waymo or Aptiv. And so my day-to-day -day is really thinking about how do we get consumers comfortable with what we know is going to be this life-changing technology, but really helping them understand some of those benefits today through this app that they know and trust, right? It's the same app that they've been using for all of their transportation needs for the last you know, half decade. So that is my bread and butter, getting to help people play with self-driving technology today through the Lyft app. 
But I would love to talk to you a little bit more about how Lyft thinks through this holistically and what our approach to self-driving is across the board. And so you've got these two cities where you are bringing self-driving to folks on the Lyft platform today. Can you tell us more broadly um, about the approach Lyft is taking toward autonomy? So we have what we call a a two-pronged approach to self-driving. So at Lyft, I think if you've interacted with us as a company at all, we very much believe that in everything we do, collaboration is the name of the game. From the moment Lyft started, we did it in collaboration with cities rather than, you know, we never want to be sort of the bad guy in the room. So for us, self-driving is very much uh, the same type of collaborative problem. So we have taken what we call a two-pronged approach to self-driving, where we're both partnering with best-in-class companies, self-driving companies like Waymo or Aptive, to deploy their self-driving technology to our consumers today. But we're also bringing our own self-driving initiative online, which we call Level 5, to build our own self-driving vehicles, as well as feed data from those vehicles back into the self-driving ecosystem. So for us, this is really how do we work as Lyft to build that collaboration ecosystem that's going to allow self-driving technology to get to our consumers faster and more safely. So why focus on building it yourself in addition to collaborating with with other partners who have been spending perhaps a longer period of time developing self-driving technology? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we launched uh, Lyft Level 5 three years ago, this was really one of the questions that was top of mind for us, right? We we weren't confused that we were a little bit late to this game. <laughs> but what we, what we knew was that, you know, what we are able to do is really take an advantage that we have that, frankly, other players in the market don't, which is we have got a fleet out on the road today, and we are able to leverage data from that fleet to really think about everything from where do we want to deploy to how do we build those quick, iterative HD maps that we need to power self-driving technology? And how can we actually bring that back into the marketplace to help other players deploy faster? So for Lyft, we actually don't, we have no particular interest in level five winning the self-driving game. What we want to make sure that we are able to do is bring this technology to consumers in the safest, most affordable way as quickly as possible. And so what you see us doing with Level 5 is both building our own car and certainly pushing to get that out to our consumers as soon as we can, but also bringing the data that we're collecting, for instance, back into the market with some of our public competitions and publicly available data sets that we have released back out to other engineers in the market to be able Uh, to push forward, again, this kind of overall self-driving ecosystem. So the the two-prong approach is really just a a way to kind of advance on all fronts to push forward the idea of self-driving technology as quickly as possible by trying all the different approaches. Is that fair? I mean, I think of this as, as probably the most difficult problem that my generation has had to solve. And we simply don't believe anyone is going to be able to solve this by going it alone. So it is going to be this kind of very heavy three-way collaboration between regulators you know, and cities, uh, 
industry players, and then consumers, right, who are also very much a part of this adoption story. And so I think where we view our role in this as Lyft is we have a, a history of building brands and new tech, bringing new technologies to market that, that people haven't tried before, right? I think sometimes when I, I talk to people in my grandmother's generation about this, I'll say things like, if you had asked me five years ago whether I could convince you to take an app out of your pocket and get into a, a car with a stranger, you would have looked at me like I was insane. And now ride sharing, once we are all back out of our homes, is really part of the fabric, I think, of, of most city dwellers' everyday lives. And we very much believe the same thing is going to happen with self-driving, but that you're going to need folks like Lyft who are bringing all of these players together to do that. It's so interesting to think about adoption of self-driving technology. There's always these studies that they ask people, oh, would you drive in a self-driving car? And of course, there's a huge reluctance when most people have never seen one, unless you live in Palo Alto, where you see yeah. like 10 of them a day. <laughs> Obviously, people are going to have some reluctance. But as you say, I mean, if you had given them the idea of rideshare early on, they would have said that was crazy too. And, and here we are. I was going to say, uh, we, we've done over 100,000 of these rides now in Phoenix and in Las Vegas. And I have sat in many of these with folks. And I think what is so interesting for me as a product manager who really sits at kind of the intersection of how are consumers interacting with technology is there is almost this very standard issue adoption curve within the course of a single ride. So when you get into a someone's first self-driving ride with them, they almost always are they're a little tense. They're a little nervous. They're anticipatory. They don't know exactly what the technology is going to do. They ask a bunch of questions up front about how it's going to work. Uh, and then you get, this is the part that varies somewhere between like, three minutes and seven minutes into the ride. And at some point, people have completely started to ignore the car, take out their phone, they're looking out the window, they're doing everything that they would do in a classic lift ride. And so one of the things that I think is enormously interesting for us is, you know, you have to get people over this initial skepticism they have about the technology. But once they're trying it, you know, what we see is 96% of our riders tell us they want to ride again. And so I think that's really kind of the beauty in bringing this to market through something like Lyft, where, you know, self-driving is just another ride mode, the same way you would take a classic ride or a bike and scooter ride or a shared ride. We're able to introduce this in sort of a normalized way for people and help them get over that adoption hump. Yeah, it's interesting. There were a lot of debates early on as people were developing the self-driving technology as to would self-driving cars be sold to the public? Are you going to buy one and it's going to sit in your driveway? Or are they only going to be deployed in fleets either due to cost or the difficulty of maintaining them and updating them? How do you see the rolling out of self-driving technology as it relates to fleets? Yeah, I think from my perspective, one of the things that, that we get sort of most wrong in the public debate on this is the big question that people tend to ask is when, 
And at least when we think about this as lift, we're much more thinking about it as where. So we very much anticipate that self-driving is going to roll out in kind of pockets of cities. So one of the big sort of technology debates within self-driving is, hey, do you need a what we call an HD map as the base layer of these cars autonomous stacks, or can you do this without a map? And I would say those of us at Lyft are, are pretty firmly in in the camp, um, which many folks like Waymo and Aptiv also are, that, that a map is going to be required. And what that means is that self-driving cars aren't going to be able to go all places at all times. So it, we cover our top sort of 50 destinations within Las Vegas today, but we choose not to map those that are lower volume. And so what that means is that for a company like Lyft, what we can really do is, is help kind of ease that transition when self-driving cars only exist within these pockets of cities and make sure that you always have a transportation solution at your fingertips. So we can make a smart decision behind the scenes if you, know, you are going from point A to point B. Let's, let's imagine, do you have any kids Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so w- what is what's a standard like soccer route for you, for instance? We have swim team in our family. <laughs> so, so when I think about this as sitting on the product management side of this, I'm really thinking about you, you know, taking your daughter to swim team, for instance, and maybe we've covered the route from your home to the pool with our self-driving cars down at level five. And maybe we've mapped that route, but maybe we haven't. And you really want to be able to open up a single app where you can get a ride no matter what and make sure that you are going to be able to get your daughter to swim practice on time rather than having to deal with sort of that uncertainty about whether the technology is going to be there for you. So that's part a big part of the reason that we think self-driving is so clearly going to roll out within fleets because it is this geography problem rather than a chronology problem. And I guess there are other limitations on what they call the operational design domain. Really could be weather, could be other things about a route that even beyond whether it's been mapped, there could be other limitations on the vehicle as well. And I I guess having a fleet or someone who is looking out for that and managing that for me is a more comfortable feeling than thinking, oh, am I going to get in my own self-driving car and then it doesn't work right? And then it can only do 20% of what I need it to do. (laughs) I mean, a a hilarious example from from our real world fleet is Mike Pence came to Las Vegas maybe six months ago and his motorcade route was right along one of our main self-driving routes. So for the day, we shut that self-driving route off because suddenly you were going to have you know, too much traffic along the route. Who wants to deal with that? We were going to have sort of blockades along certain parts of the route. And so we can make these intelligent decisions behind the scenes where we never even offer you that option as a passenger because we know it wouldn't be a good experience. Well, I did uh, open my Lyft app when I was in Las Vegas last year and saw the self-driving option and, of course, chose it because, <laughs> because that's fun. So that I, I did have the experience of driving in Las Vegas in one of your vehicles. 
driving up and down the strip in Las Vegas, it, you know, it kind of feels a little bit like the kitty ride at Disney. Like yeah. it's <laughs> not something that's really pushing the envelope on edge cases for autonomous vehicle testing. So I assume the point of going to a place like Las Vegas is more about the ride hailing aspect of it than about advancing autonomous driving. Yeah, I certainly think when we want to deploy self-driving cars to our Lyft passengers, we are very much thinking about this in terms of what are the real world transportation problems we are solving for them, rather than thinking about this as how do we advance the technology behind the scenes, which we tend to do offline without passengers in the car. But what it, Las Vegas is very good at in terms of edge cases is things like the drunk reveler running into the road, as That's well true. as you know, really stress testing some of the things that, that people don't talk as much about in self-driving, but are incredibly important to get right. So you know, one of the big things that, that you realize when you run a, a self-driving fleet on the road today is self-driving cars are more cautious and as a result, slower than you know your average Lyft ride, right? I, I think those of us who've ridden in self-driving cars would say, you know, they are the best ride your grandmother ever gave you. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 you tend to kind of not make sudden moves. It's not going to dart out into traffic. And one of the big things we're, we're starting to recognize is you know, when we started this as Lyft, I think we were really thinking about what are all of the things that are going to make people uncomfortable with self-driving technology? Where are they going to be nervous about this? How do we need to compensate for the fact that there's not going to be a driver in that car? And what we're really finding is that people are by and large much more comfortable with the technology than we were anticipating. But those same problems that they have, frankly, with their classic ride sharing experiences today persist into a self-driving future. So if I'm at the Cosmopolitan and I'm going to a show down the strip, I want to be on time and I want to have confidence that my ride is going to get me there in time for my show. And so one of the real things our team focuses on is sort of how do we make sure that when we deploy self-driving technology to you know, our Lyft riders, that we're really giving them a transportation experience that that solves for what they need, where they're arriving at swim practice on time, so to speak. You've done more than 100,000 rides with your partner, Aptive, in Las Vegas. Is that right? It, that's correct. We have done over 100,000 paid rides. So this is... I think one of the other things that's really interesting for us is this is a commercial service. We are asking people you know, to actually pay to try this technology. And, and by and large, again, we are seeing sort of real consumer excitement, even when we're saying, hey, same price as a Lyft Classic ride. It's going to be a little slower, but you'll get there more safely. We're seeing that, that consumers are really kind of game to try that. Some of the ride service challenges that people anticipate with autonomy are the issues around not having a driver present. Like, mm -hmm. how do you find the vehicle? Where is it going to pull over? Are you thinking about how to move forward testing some of those issues with your partner programs? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we believe deploying self-driving cars into the, to the world today allows us to do is really make sure that when we bring fully driverless vehicles into the market, so just for your listeners, 
clarity, all of these cars that we put out onto the roads today have a safety driver sitting up front. And in some cases, you get a bonus safety operator who really is just there to make sure that the car is doing everything it is expected to do. But once we are deploying into a fully, fully driverless world, a lot of the work that my team focuses on is really how do we start building those experiences that make it comfortable for a consumer to sit in the back of the ride, whether it's something like sort of concierge type service that answers all of your questions about a ride, or even something that looks a little bit more advanced. One of the concepts we are starting to play with is the idea that this is very much a ride that gives you back your time. So when we think about the value of self-driving, it's really you know what most people think about is safety, but this other aspect is time. I mean, we're all currently living what it means to get an hour back from our days and our commutes. And we think self-driving really has that same potential. And so what if this becomes your office on the go? What are the sort of other options we can provide to you within a transportation solution that that make it so that you get this, you know, the scarcest of your resources back? And that's, I think, one of the things that really excites me about the next phase of this development is really thinking about how we can add value back into to people's lives with that time in ride. So interesting. I know that Waymo is running its own ride service in Chandler, Arizona. And can you tell us about the partnership that you have with Waymo? And I I think Waymo has pulled the safety driver from some of its rides. Are you considering giving that a try on the Lyft platform? Yes. So we are partnered with Waymo in the Phoenix area and do it very much looks like our program in Las Vegas today. So you open your Lyft app in Phoenix. If there's a self-driving car nearby and available, you will be able to take that powered by Waymo technology. I'll let Waymo talk through their plans with the uh, Waymo One driverless program. But what I will say is from the Lyft end, you know, our goal here is really to make sure that we can bring the safest and best technology solutions to our riders as soon as possible. And so any way that we are able to do that, we will certainly be exploring. And are you thinking about other partnerships, other geographies? How do you think about the partnership piece of the autonomy program? Is it something you're looking to expand or just to really get feedback from a few spots? So, you know, I think we have publicly announced partnerships with Aptiv and Waymo today, but you should expect to see us you know, continuing to expand these programs, both in terms of partnerships and geographies. You mentioned Lyft has its own team of engineers developing an autonomous driving system that division's called Level 5. You started in 2017. Are you ramping up the amount of testing? Are you doing public roads, closed course? How are you thinking about pushing that program forward? Yeah, great question. So first off, for your listeners who don't uh, hang out with the SAE autonomy levels uh, every (laughs) day in and day out, level five refers to a self-driving car that is uh, fully autonomous everywhere. So that is an autonomous vehicle that can sort of, it's the dream state of what autonomy looks like. Uh, And so we named our level five effort after that sort of end game. But when we launched level five, almost three years ago now, we were 
a relatively small player. We, we certainly were not the first to the game. But what's been really remarkable to watch is kind of the level of progress that we have made in that period of time. So we now have you know, over 400 engineers spread across two continents. We have an office down in Palo Alto, as well as in Munich and London, where our team called the Blue Visions Lab team resides, which I'm happy to chat more about. But I think what we've really focused on is how do we start bringing this experience to consumers, probably like you, down in the South Bay. And so last year, we launched our first internal employee pilot along the Caltrain Palo Alto corridor. So we really, again, we we're always focused on what is a real world sort of transportation need for our riders. In this case, we had level five employees who needed to get to the office. So that was, they were commuting from the city. They needed to get to the office from Caltrain. So that was where we focused. I think you should expect to see us do more and bring that to the public going, hopefully, if the world opens back up, hopefully sooner <laughs> rather than later. I think the other thing that that we've really gotten excited about in the last year is we just opened our first uh, local test track in, in East Palo Alto. So again, there are two kinds of on-road testing, closed course and public road. We do a mix of the two, but basically you want to do closed course testing when you're doing things like testing new features, whereas public roads are only once you've gone through sort of very heavy validation process. And we had a test track out at the Gomentum station, which many self-driving players use. But we just opened up a test track in the East Palo Alto area. And again, coming back to kind of that, that collaboration piece of the puzzle, we're trying to figure out who else may benefit from using you know, a test track that is frankly very close to where many of the big self-driving players are located so that we can all frankly give back to, to getting this technology to market faster. So as Lyft thinks about moving toward an autonomous fleet for at least some portion of the fleet, how will that change the operation of your business? The idea of running a fleet is something that the ride hailing companies have some advantage because they run the platform mm. today. But it's also very different. Right now, your asset light drivers are bringing their own cars to the platform. And running a self-driving fleet would involve owning vehicles, positioning them, having to think about route optimization or other things. How is Lyft starting to think about those aspects of, of running an autonomous fleet? Yeah, I actually think a lot of this is pretty squarely in line with what we do in parts of our business today. So take, for instance, fleet management, which is something I always joke that the less sexy it is, the more excited I am about it. So like, <laughs> you can get me talking for an hour about cleaning autonomous vehicles. I believe in the last year, we've launched a, a series of what we call vehicle service centers for our drivers. So these are hubs where Lyft drivers can go in, get their vehicles serviced, charge their phones, maybe get a snack. And what we anticipate is that this provides really a foundation layer of what we're going to be able to do in the fleet management space for AV. So a lot of the same problems that we're taking on, whether by trying to help serve our drivers better today or managing fleets of cars through our express drive program which is a rental program we we run for our driver base today 
are kind of building that that foundation for optimization in the future. I think the the thing that gets me even more excited is kind of the possibility for optimization of these self-driving fleets. And that really, it's less of a business problem for me and more of a a kind of city question, which is what is the city I want to live in in the future? I think all of us know that a world that is powered by single occupancy, gas powered vehicles is not going to be the world we sort of want to hand to our children. So when we think about fleets of self-driving, hopefully electric vehicles powered by Lyft, we are going to be able to make much smarter optimization decisions about when to take those vehicles out on the road, when to bring them back to the depot so that we aren't adding to congestion within our cities. But the sort of degrees of of control that we're able to have when we think about a fully self-driving fleet is really where we start opening up this possibility to get cars off the road. How does that differ from today for those people who don't totally understand the way drivers on the Lyft platform operate? Do you have any control today over the human drivers, where they go, other than perhaps offering some incentives? Can you control how many drivers, where they are, how much they're driving around in between rides or, or anything like that? So for us, you know, Lyft drivers, part of what is what's sort of great for a Lyft driver today is also the thing that makes it hard, frankly, to fully optimize uh, a fleet of vehicles, which is for a Lyft driver today, this is basically a flexible opportunity. So you can get online, do a couple of rides, head to your other job, or you can go drive around all day and sort of figure out when you want to get online and offline based on what your kids after school schedule looks like. And so when we look at a fleet of self-driving vehicles, we're much more able to make kind of smart decisions about when do you put cars on the road? When do you take them off the road? How do you make a decision? We can look at sort of all of the demand across a market within our fleet and make a decision about whether we should send a car to another part of the city or keep it where it is because we don't think it's likely to be able to get a ride. And so that is the type of optimization that sort of self-driving really opens up when you, there are some things that make it truly magical, like uh, V to X technology, where you're able to then talk to infrastructure within a city and truly make smart decisions about what routes you're taking and how you optimize those to reduce traffic. But this is where kind of the dream world starts starts to come alive. How do you envision being able to maintain enough human drivers on the platform if you do get to a point where you're doing a fair amount of the trips with autonomous vehicles? You mentioned you would still need some trips to be covered with human drivers because the autonomous vehicle wouldn't work for that particular trip. How would you envision being able to sort of manage that aspect of keeping human drivers interested in the platform? I think one of the things that those of us who work in self-driving are all too aware of is the fact that that self-driving really is going to roll out in these pockets, um, and those pockets are going to be limited. So we anticipate that there is always going to be a need for drivers on our platform. And that frankly, you know, given the growth that we expect to see in ride sharing, that there's always going to be, frankly, more earning opportunities than there are today. So the stat that always 
boggles my mind on this is ride sharing is less than 1% of vehicle miles traveled today. And so as we continue to see that number grow, we expect to continue to see growth for both you know, self-driving vehicles on our platform, but also you know, those Lyft drivers who have made, frankly, our, our company what it is today. So you mentioned some of the issues with cities and traffic, especially with single occupancy vehicles. Two things strike me about ride services today. The first is that people love them and use them all the time and think it's much better than taxis. And so people are generally pretty happy with the service. But also there's kind of this downside where city officials complain that ride hill cars cause traffic, reduce use of transit, and cities really want to limit ride hail trips or penalize those trips differently from other car trips. How does Lyft think about working with cities on issues like traffic and transit today and when you have an autonomous fleet? Great question and certainly something. I am a proud Bostonian who now lives in San Francisco. And I would say I almost view my number one identity as a lover of cities. And so as we start really thinking about the power of self-driving to transform cities, that is a huge amount of what gets me up every day and sort of gets me pumped about what we're able to do within the self-driving revolution. But when I look at the world today, I think, frankly, this is going to be a continued and evolving partnership where you know, we all know that the number one cause of congestion is people driving alone in their vehicles. And when we were founded, you know, we were founded with the mission of increasing car occupancy and decreasing the number of personally owned vehicles on the road. And so you now see us starting to really take steps to introduce that into our app. So Everything from, you know, if you live in a city where lift bikes and scooters are available, we're now trying to introduce more multimodal forms of transportation into the app to get people out of those vehicles to integrations with transit, which we've launched in a few of our big markets. So you can open up your Lyft app and you know, see where the closest bus stop is and what time the bus is going to be arriving. You know, our vision of this future really looks like all of that being stitched together so that you've got one app that sort of is able to take you through the city without ever getting into a car if you don't need to. And I think self-driving is just kind of the continuation of that vision where you know, what I imagine is a world where I've got my self-driving shared ride that, that leads me down to the ferry building in San Francisco where I can pick up my Lyft bike and then make it the remainder of my 10 minutes to work because I know that that strip of road along the Embarcadero is always going to be crowded at 8 a.m. And so when we think about this as we go forward, I think in many ways, what is right for Lyft is also right for cities, which is we want to help people get where they are going as fast and as easily as possible. And that often means getting them out of their cars. And is there more that cities can do in terms of thinking about street space and curb mm. space to make room for both ride services and also micromobility and, and other multimodal options? So we launched a pilot program with the city of San Francisco, I want to say last year, called the Valencia Street Pilot, where we sort of moved pickups and drop-offs from Lyft 
off of Valencia Street, which is a main thoroughfare here in San Francisco, off to side streets. Um, and we were able to move, I think it was 40,000 pickups and drop-offs off of Valencia onto side streets. And I love that type of model, both for ride sharing and for, for self-driving more generally, because we know that we are going to want these sort of dedicated spots that we are taking away from single car occupancy parking and moving into uh, a shared use or a multi-use space. And so I think, you know, at least the way I see this evolving, what I anticipate we will see is many more of these sort of city and ride sharing based pilots where we figure out the working model for this uh, and continue to find ways to really repurpose that curb towards more of a shared use. Parking, I think, is is one of the real interesting vectors here. You know, how do we, we've got these cars today that are used, what, 5% of the time. How do we really put them into use 95% of the time and do it more efficiently? And suddenly we also free up, you know, what is it, our 700 million parking spaces in the U.S. <laughs> that we're currently dedicating to this. Yeah, it, it really seems like there's a little bit of a supply and demand mismatch, right? That we're taking up all this space with parked cars, especially on the street. But at the same time, we're hearing from cities, oh, there are so many Uber and Lyft trips. There's so many people wanting to take ride hail trips. It seems to me that there, that if we could even that out and say, okay, well, if people want to take ride hail trips, then let's get rid of the street parking and give the curb over to pick up and drop off both for deliveries, which obviously have also increased as well as for ride hail. So it seems like maybe the street space just hasn't caught up yet with the different ways that people would like to get around cities. I mean, and we never even, we never even talk about this in terms of the time component. So I remember looking at this for for a self-driving deployment we were considering, and there is this one little strip in Westwood Village in LA where it turns out people basically spend so much time circling for parking that they spend about 95,000 hours a year collectively just doing that street circle. Imagine if those were smart spots where there were some dynamic pricing option that allowed all of us to share that curb. And suddenly you not only sort of use the space more efficiently, but you also get time back. Uh, and so for me, that's that's what gets really exciting here. I will say, and I know you've had some, some folks on from you know, different city planning agencies. This is a really, really hard job. They have a lot of constituencies who have very different needs for those curbs. And I think this is really one of the hardest jobs in public policy today is, is thinking about how do we reapportion that, that curb space for many more of these shared use cases that I think we all, all of us as citizens want to be able to push into, but, but frankly, there's just, there's a lot of headwinds at their, at their back. Yeah. It seems like the political challenges for folks who are trying to run city transportation departments are really difficult to manage. And I guess that leads to to one of the most challenging political issues, which is road pricing. A number of cities like New York 
have imposed things like caps on the number of Uber and Lyft vehicles or restraints on pricing or where the cities are really looking at studies that show Uber and Lyft traffic in certain downtown areas and saying, well, okay, if there's increased ride hail traffic, let's put some sort of a tax or a cap or a restraint onto the ride hail services. What is Lyft's view of things like road pricing for all vehicles versus trying to address the problem just for ride hail? Is there a, a better way that cities could approach this problem? Yeah, I think one of the things we've been very public on, I think we started talking about this in 2017 or 2018, is the idea that that Lyft would like to see a road tax on a vehicle miles traveled basis. So I think we are very supportive of the idea that if we've got vehicles out on the road, we are happy to pay for those miles, but we want to make sure that we are incentivizing the right things. So in our, I think, ideal world, we would look at a, a structure that looks like there's a certain BMT tax on any individual mile traveled, and then there's a decreased tax on a shared ride. So we want to actually align the incentives with the right behavior for us, but also other other travelers in the system. And I think that's really... it. It's one of the places where, again, self-driving may give us like a little bit almost of a political opening because you have this moment of technology change that that shifts potentially the policy landscape. I think we are able to do things with a self-driving fleet that we are not necessarily as easily able to do as a city and private provider when we're looking at, at individual vehicles. And so my hope is that Lyft will partner with cities and with regulators to get the right incentive structure in place so that we're really penalizing what we all want to penalize, which is miles in individually occupied cars. And I think the another overlay that I've heard from cities there is to charge more for those miles when they're in congested areas at peak times. And so if you are going to take a Lyft by yourself, taking up a lot of road space in your one person in your one car, and you're going to go into downtown San Francisco at rush hour, that that would be priced higher than taking your own Lyft vehicle at two in the morning when you're going home from your late night shift, where there's no traffic on the road to sort of have pricing that would reflect demand and need for that road space as well. Yeah, I think congestion pricing is certainly one of the answers as long as it is sort of applied across the board. But I also think continuing to find ways that we can help incentivize people to take shared rides. So things like the way that incentives for employer-based remits for transportation subsidies work is that they're only available for vehicles that are six people or more. So if I'm an employee of Lyft and I get some sort of transportation subsidy as part of my compensation, I can't uh, actually take a vehicle that right now I can't take most standard Lyfts because they're they're five people or fewer. And so there are other sort of smart public policy decisions we can make to incentivize shared rides. I think we should continue 
to push on, particularly as we are looking towards this shared electric autonomous future. That's interesting because you've mentioned shared rides, and I know both Uber and Lyft have tried to roll out in various cities, Uber Pool, Lyft Line, and it seems like people don't really want to share rides. People don't want to ride in a car with another person and the uncertainty about how that will affect their drive. We can get to the pandemic in a minute, but even without the pandemic, shared rides are not that popular. So I, I like your idea about employer incentives. Do you think that we need different economic incentives to get people to actually share rides? So it's interesting. I don't think we publicly make our shared ride figures available, but I actually would disagree uh, that shared rides are are not popular with consumers. I think it's a very specific <laughs> consumer base, right? We've got a set of people. I, I am only a shared rides user because I'm enormously price sensitive and I'm usually less time sensitive. And so I think the the onus on Lyft is really to figure out how do we help passengers make riders make that time money trade off and make smart decisions about when a shared ride works for them or a Lyft bike or a classic ride. And how do we give them that predictability they need to feel comfortable taking a shared ride? But I would say we do have a very strong base of consumers for whom shared rides are a huge part of their lives and certainly you know transitioning into a little bit of of the post-covid world i think one of the things that's that's really been challenging is suddenly we don't have that option available for our regular users just as we've sort of partnered with cities to make sure that that we're doing everything we can to operate as safely as possible and so what you see us starting to test out are other options that sort of give people that affordable choice. So we've just launched something we call Wait and Save, which allows people to wait a little bit longer and save a little bit more on their ride. So we're continuing to find that that niche for people who want an affordable ride, whether it's to their essential job. I guess we're, we're not going that many places right now, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for essential mostly, trips. Yes, exactly. I'm trying to think where else one goes. Uh, the grocery I, store. Is- yeah, that's about exactly. it. Exactly. You're alluding to the pandemic. We're recording this in May of 2020 during the global pandemic. We're starting to see some areas reopen. We've had really only essential workers and essential trips happening in many places throughout the world. This has been devastating from, you know, a health and economic perspective, but also particularly very damaging to transportation companies, including Uber and Lyft. Has the pandemic changed your view of autonomy going forward? Does it become more pressing or is it a side project that gets postponed when there are economic challenges? How do you think about self-driving in light of uh, where we are today? Yeah, I mean, certainly these are unprecedented times and times I fully expect to be telling my grandchildren about and sort of how I lived during the pandemic of of 2020. But from a autonomy perspective, I think what this has really done is put into stark relief some of the work that, that was already underway today when we're thinking about rolling out autonomous rides. So one, you know, I think we now recognize that there, we've always known there's a, a group of of riders who want a little bit more privacy in their rides than they're able to get today. And I think one of 
of the things we're certainly thinking about as we push into our autonomous future is how do we make sure we are getting this technology out to people that frankly, in these times would be life changing, where you could have a car show up that you know is clean, that you know is sanitized, and frankly, that doesn't put two different people into potential contact with each other. Certainly, we're taking all the precautions that we possibly can with our drivers and our riders today. But there are these amazing opportunities if we were able to bring autonomy out onto the road today. I think it's also really calling to light some of the importance of these less glamorous aspects of autonomy, which Lyft, I think, has been more focused on than potentially other more. So we're very much a consumer focused player. There are other other players who are more fundamentally technology focused. And we've been thinking about what we call the garbage problem literally since the day that we launched this team, right? We know that horrible experience of getting into a car that doesn't feel clean today, right? If you want to you know, get to work and, and your car shows up and it doesn't smell good, it, you start your day off on the wrong foot. And so when we're thinking about this from an autonomy perspective, it's really what are all of these aspects of fleet management that we absolutely have to get right to make this experience great for a passenger in the future? So you know, it doesn't sound sexy, but the tools that we've built to do cleaning and fleet management of our our self-driving cars today, maybe things that we start thinking about deploying into our our rideshare fleet in the future and certainly just call to light how critical this is going to be as as we keep thinking about how do we deploy safe transportation options for people. So final question, what does the next year look like for Lyft's self-driving programs? Obviously, things have been thrown into a bit of disarray (laughs) for everyone with the, the global pandemic. But how are you thinking about the next year? So, uh, yes, I mean, I, I think like everyone, largely we are just all looking forward to being able to, to get back to some version of normal life. But for us, that normal life really looks like how do we start bringing some of these value added products to our consumers in self-driving rides today? So, you know, right now, if you get into an active ride in Las Vegas, it looks and feels very much like a, a lift ride does today. And I think one of the next places we're going is really how do we continue to make this just that much easier for any rider who is jumping into that car to arrive at their destination relaxed and refreshed and sort of fully in control of that day ahead for them. So I think we're really looking to some of the same things that the rest of the world is looking to, which is when we come back out of this, how do we kind of hit the ground running as uh, humans in the world? And how do we build the product suite that will go into self-driving cars that will make make our lives that much better. Well, we look forward to taking more self-driving rides with <laughs> Lyft. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to hear about and what you guys are doing. Absolutely fantastic to be here. And, and here's to doing this again sometime in a, uh, a public park in, within six feet of each other. That's, <laughs> that's great. All right. Thanks again. Take care. Take care. Thanks again to Jody for joining us. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of season five on our new publication, smartercars.substack.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.